Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, we're going to start with um, Boris Johnson. I suppose we have to mention that rather extraordinary speech to the CBI. Probably not very often that the CBI um, has a speech in which uh, Peppa Pig is invoked. Um, which seemed to bring out some derision. Um, I think he also said it was a British success story, perhaps ignoring the fact that the company making Peppa Pig got taken over by a Canadian company several years ago. But <laughs> I suppose originally it was British. But um, yes, from a business point of view, it's indicative of lots of British success stories that then go elsewhere. Um, so um, was it an ill-fated speech? Was it well judged and what on earth is is going on i mean we're used to boris johnson's speeches going perhaps all over the shop and invoking some quite unusual things but by all accounts it was not necessarily well argued it wasn't and i think the prime minister is now beginning to see how his particular brand of after dinner speaking his image the carefully cultivated persona of shambolicness that he possesses is and projects around himself is starting to wear thin with people that he cannot simply, uh, as he did during the Tory leadership election or indeed speeches before that, make some amusing side reference when people are expecting serious, coherent policy from him. And at the moment, the issues around number 10 are piling up. And I think this, this, this speech in question for many people underlined the concerns that have been growing, particularly among Conservative backbenchers over the last few weeks, about the Prime Minister's seriousness and competence to do the job in these difficult times. And by this, I mean that starting with the Owen Patterson affair and moving through since then, the Prime Minister's political judgment has been questioned. And there have been a number of policy decisions that we've discussed previously on the podcast that have led people to question this. Uh, High-speed rail was one of them. The fact the decision was taken to axe the HS2 uh, extension up to Leeds. There was another point about social care reform in which Labour has been able to point out that the government's amendment that was pushed through on Monday in the Commons will undoubtedly affect those people uh, who have uh, lower priced assets and it will protect people on higher priced assets. Now, if you're remembering about issues of social care reform, Gisdama mm. drew those parallels back to 2017. But the message seems to be that Tory MPs are increasingly wondering if they have a serious leader for what they view as serious times. And of course, everyone's mind is on the next election now. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a bit of history here. So. In 1987, Margaret Thatcher led the Tories to their third successive win with a majority of 102. Three years later, she was out. David Cameron uh, led the Tories to an unexpected but slim majority of 12 in 2015. 13 months later, he was gone. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, does Boris Johnson really have another 12 months in the job? Mm. Do you think he wants it? 
I think he wants to be at the top of the pyramid, but I think the trouble is when you reach the top, you have, there has to be something there that you want to do. And if we look at prime ministers who held the post with any degree of longevity, they had some form of guiding mission or principle. Um, we can look, for example, to Margaret Thatcher and the, uh, the the reforms that she implemented there. Tony Blair certainly gained more of a sense of self, he claims, the longer he was in Downing Street and grew more comfortable with the levers of power. And of course, we could expect at the start, I think, prime ministers not to fully grasp, particularly if like Boris Johnson, they're coming in from an experience, say, when they've been foreign secretary, which doesn't have a lot of heavy policy mm. detail involved. It's largely a personal role. And then Boris Johnson wasn't judged to be good at that. And being mayor of London, he doesn't have a lot of governing experience. But other prime ministers were able to grasp the detail more quickly. And certainly after two or three years in the job, I've said this throughout Boris Johnson's time as prime minister, now we're into the third year. He is not a man who does well on detail. And unfortunately, he has faced, and unfortunately more at large for the country, he has faced situations where he needs to be on top of things. And he's still basically making the same speeches that he was making, trying to hit the same notes he was hitting in 2019. A serious leader, I would argue, would have used the last few weeks to really consider how to get on top of different situations and project a more serious persona. Ultimately, however, though, and this is the Prime Minister's biggest failing here, he clearly does not see himself as somebody to whom the rules should apply. He has spent his entire political career, indeed most of his life, bending and breaking rules to suit him. And the most serious stuff that is currently ongoing is probably around the, the push, the attempt his party made to undermine the standard system at Westminster, of which, of course, the Prime Minister has himself been found to be in breach of on a number of occasions. Add to that media stories about him not being seen to wear a mask in certain settings, including in a hospital. And there's a narrative now building that this is a prime minister who sees himself as above everything, even above those of his own party. Uh, uh, do you, I mean, clearly the only way that he, he will go unless he voluntarily <clears throat> leaves is for his backbenchers to rebel against him, or indeed ministers. Are we seeing much sign of that yet? Uh, not at the moment, no. And I think it's fair to say that the Conservative Party, uh, it, there has to be a point at which the leader is judged to be an electoral liability. I think we're thinking here of Edward Heath, we're thinking here, funnily enough, in their own way as well. David Cameron was a slightly different one, but he did choose to go to war with his party over Europe in the EU referendum to air those differences and to campaign for a position that he ultimately lost, which cost him his job. Theresa May was forced out by her own party in the long term because of Europe as well. So the Conservatives have a pretty ruthless streak when it comes to them as well. The Prime Minister did, however, just win a large election majority a few years ago, but the opinion poll lead that the Tories have enjoyed pretty much consistently, apart from a few blips mm. until now, has evaporated in recent days. Now, obviously, I caveat this by saying that these are just one or two opinion polls. We have to look at the trends and Labour should, by all right and reason, if it was a more effective leader of the opposition, especially, be further ahead. But Keir Starmer has edged ahead by a point. But what we're heading for now, and I think if anyone's not considering this, then they're missing the point here, is that on the current projections, based on the current poll figures as of today, with the Conservatives and Labour within one or two points of each other, sound familiar? This is where we kind of were around the 2015 election. It might put us in a situation where we have a hung parliament where the Conservatives do not have enough seats to command an overall majority. Labour have just picked up enough to be a minority government, but then are reliant on the SNP to keep them in office as well.
This is a lot of conjecture here, but the reason it matters is that until now, Boris, Johnson is re Boris Johnson's reputation within the Conservative Party has been as a proven winner. This is why his party lets him get away with as much as it does. David Cameron got away with a lot less, so did Theresa May, even though they, they arguably tried to push things as much. And in Theresa May's case, she actually objectively went against the um, director for some of her backbenchers after she lost her majority and took a more courageous line mm. on areas like Brexit. But the most important thing to remember is that, as you say, only Tory MPs have the power to get rid of the Prime Minister. There, was a, there have been stories about them gathering, but at the moment there's no sign of a concerted attempt to oust him or indeed of a serious rival around the cabinet table or on the back benches who could take his place. Mm. I'm curious. I mean, I remember him as a journalist. I mean, he was a, a, quite an interesting journalist, iconoclastic, sort of fizzing with ideas that weren't necessarily all consistent. But he, he seems to be sort of challenging the orthodoxy. He doesn't seem anything like that as the prime minister. Um, to some extent, do you think it, a, a lot of the problems are because of the people around him? And we've, you know, we had Dominic Cummings to begin with, and people thought things would change when Cummings left. But I can't say that I see that much difference, really. Ultimately, it was very tempting when Dominic Cummings was there to blame him for the mm. Prime Minister's failings as a leader, to blame him for the uh, the problems inside Downing Street. And again, we're seeing briefing today that this is falling on the Cabinet Secretary, uh, Simon Case. But ultimately, those around the Prime Minister are willing to put the blame anywhere else but at the top, because they know they're very aware of their man's shortcomings. He can be a charismatic and very um, interesting figure. But you could argue the country has lacked serious leadership since he took over. And I think one of the things that people are worrying about is that the UK is facing a situation not of the sunny uplands uh, type of variety, but time is calling for a serious figure. And this, ironically, is something that should benefit Keir Starmer. But unfortunately, the Labour Party's reputation as an opposition party and indeed as a party of government has been trashed so thoroughly, largely by itself, over the last 10 years. We cannot be entirely sure that people will gravitate to Keir Starmer in the same way they turn to Joe Biden after the chaos of Donald Trump. Mm. Ultimately, I suspect the nail in the Prime Minister's coffin will probably come when the inevitable COVID inquiry begins and start and people start giving evidence and we begin to learn about the chaoticness around his downing street. We might learn, for example, it might shine a bit more light on things, for example, how he wanted to go off and allegedly write his book on Shakespeare at the height of the pandemic. It might throw light on somebody who has been seen to be... Um, straw in the wind as it were a, a weather vane mm. if you were as opposed to signpost to borrow that old tony ben saying ultimately though i wonder if the, the best influence on the prime minister to step aside and i, I firmly believe that, that i think actually he, his premiership will probably be a shorter one than he anticipates it being that he might be lucky enough to get a second election victory albeit with a narrow majority at best might come from his own wife and I think, actually, if I were the Prime Minister's family, I might be looking for him to say, actually, you've got two young children. Uh, the second one is just mm -hmm. on the way. You are in a very high-pressure, high-stress job. Can you really do any more than you already have done? You were elected to get Brexit done. Why don't you go out on a high? And arguably, the best thing that a Prime Minister can do is to recognise when the wind is turning and to step aside. But very few of them have done that. In fact, only I was about Harold to say, Wilson, yes, yes, not Only many. Harold Wilson's ever called it right. But... Mm -hmm. 
if Boris Johnson were to do that and get out of the way voluntarily, that might do himself and his reputation the best possible favour. Well, perhaps it's too early to speculate who might um, step into his shoes. But let's talk about Keir Starmer for a moment then, because it's something we, we were discussing just a few weeks ago, how he was doing. Now, clearly, during the pandemic, it's quite difficult for the leader of the opposition to make um, political capital when you're in an emergency. But um, how is he doing now? And really, he should be pushing at an open door. He should be, but unfortunately, don't forget that we're in a very unusual time. I mean, the last time we were facing a Conservative government in this situation, this sort of this many terms into office, and uh, I would argue this government's aged in dog years compared to its, its long-serving predecessors uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. I'm thinking, of course, of the Churchill, Eden, Macmillan uh, government. And then, of course, I'm thinking of the Thatcher major government as well. There were there wasn't a very dynamic figure um, leading the government to John Major and the government had a smaller majority that vanished over the course of that parliament and you had a very dynamic opposition leader in the form of Tony Blair and Labour, people were champing at the bit for Labour to get in um, but it was all about being seen to be the perception of change. Now there are uh, still figures on the Labour benches, I would argue, who are making interesting decisions and moves, Rachel Reeves and Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Treasury team especially, but unfortunately, at the moment, I think many people have made their mind up about Keir Starmer already. Now, I think his best route to Downing Street, his best route to getting this government out, is to project himself actually as a sort of steadying, calming influence on the country as well. Because mm. I think Labour has had a reputation for being very um, provocative, for being very uh, unruly as well. And of course, the Labour Party has the democratic structures, or more democratic structures than the Conservatives which means that members do air their concerns more openly against their leader. But for any sort of Labour figure, it, they should really be thinking seriously about, OK, this government is potentially looking at a fifth term in office now, potentially uh, not being out of office until the earliest, uh, if Boris wins another majority or whoever succeeds him until the end of uh, um, the next decade. Now, that might be a good thing from some people's concerns, but unfortunately, there are still several problems that have piled up and the government hasn't even really delivered on its headline pledge to get Brexit sorted. Mm. Labour has to position itself really as a party of credibility, and that means not just coming out of policies, but Keir Starmer being seen to be somebody who could lead the country through a crisis. And if he, his best bet to do that, I would argue, is positioning himself as a direct contrast to this Prime Minister as somebody who might be dull, yes, but would be, in that wonderful phrase, a safe pair of hands. OK, Mike, time for us to uh, change subjects. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ...with Mike Indian, uh, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. We're going to look now at the um, appalling story of these mig latest migrant deaths in the channel. I mean, there are some deaths, you know, um, periodically, but this um, particular incident is, is um, 
extremely shocking. So yeah. first of all, remind us what's happened, and then we should discuss really whether there's a solution to this. Well, many people will be familiar, of course, with the situation of small um, vessels, small boats, sometimes little more than inflatables, rafts crossing the channel from France as um, people try to uh, reach the UK in order to claim asylum. There is a uh, there is a, a piece of legislation currently before Parliament that's designed to try and crack down on this particular area, and certainly for MPs on the South Coast, particularly MPs in Kent around Dover and Deal, for example, like Natalie Elphick. This is an issue that they feel very strongly about. Uh, the argument against um, taking in uh, people across the uh, crossing the migrant camps in northern France is that. Uh, the UK government says they have reached a country of safe haven already in the form of France, and that there is no incentive really for them to cross to the UK. So they're trying to disincentivize the route, make it harder in terms of process. So basically, even if they do make it across, then you could argue that they would just be simply be given a cup of tea, as one person said, and sent back again. However, incidents like this really shine a spotlight on the degree to which people are prepared to take their lives in their own hands, but also give money to the shameful practice of people trafficking. Mm. And as we, as the details of this story unfold, we know that uh, around 27 people have drowned in the deadliest crossing on record, 17 men, seven women, uh, one of whom is pregnant, and three children, according to France's interior minister. And this comes at a time when Anglo-French relations have reach something of a low point there's a great deal of posturing on both sides um not just from the uk government but especially from the french given there is a run-up to a presidential election next year we've seen this breakout in uh, over issues like fishing rights for example and impounding of vessels but on issues like migration even when the UK was contemplating leaving the EU. There was a recognition on issues like border security and immigration. There would need to be some sort of continued collaboration. And the narrowest point, only 20-something miles separates the UK and France. This is not an issue that we as a country can ignore, nor pretend it doesn't affect our borders. Now, we do take, it has to be said, a considerably lower share of refugees than other countries in Europe do. We, I think, arguably exploit our status as an island nation to its full advantage in that sense. But people are still risking their lives to travel thousands of miles, often from countries like Somalia or Iraq or Syria, to come to this country in Europe. Maybe because they have family here, maybe because they want to make a better life for themselves. So it is incumbent upon the government to, yes, to work to, uh, as it says, as it's already said, smash the business of people trafficking but also recognise that there are many people there who view this as their route to get in and there should be a creation through immigration form of safe and legal routes for them to do so so they are not coming out of the dunes around Dunkirk early in the morning and risking their lives crossing in often flimsy ill-equipped vessels and taking their own lives in their hands. Mm. What, what is the real incentive? I mean, you know, you quoted Boris Johnson there saying that, that France should be seen as a, a you know, already a, a safe haven. I mean, many of us love going to France. It's, it's a fine country. Why do they want to come here so often rather than France? Um, I mean, you mentioned having relations here, which I can un understand, but why is the UK considered so much more attractive than France? 
I think bear in mind that we have to look at the numbers of people that arrive in France as well. They're still going to be greater partly because of, you know, we, we, we could say this, for example, we look at people, say, crossing from North Africa that, that you know, going to Greek islands, that the UK is considered to be, we're not an exceptional case here. We do, there is a comparatively low number of people. Um, crossings do tend to fall dramatically in the autumn. Mm. The issues are many and complex. For some people, it's simply a matter of wanting to come here to work. For other people, it might be wanting access to uh, a country where they feel it might be harder to be deported from, for example, because of the uh, because of the um, the geography of it. The reasons for each person coming will be many and complicated. It might be they don't feel welcome in the country of uh, that they arrive in, and this issue has become something of a a moral one uh, with. Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson each urging the other to compromise, but also posturing as well. There are, Mr. Macron has insisted there are around 47,000 attempted channel crossings in the year that's just gone, with around nearly 8,000 migrants rescued. Uh, the problem is that they're crossing the busiest shipping lane in the world with the Dover Straits. And so this thing, he was hit by a ship, apparently, wasn't yes. it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, we're waiting for we the details to emerge, yeah. but suffice to say that it's one of the areas, the factors that's at play here. And with record numbers of migrants trying to cross from France to the UK, it's at least it's a thought that at least 10 other people have passed away, uh, tragically lost their lives mm. in the last few weeks. Now, what we can't do is, I think, make the UK objectively a less attractive place to come to. I, I think that is entirely the wrong incentive to make the process of asylum seeking harder because what it doesn't stop is people attempting to get across the channel in the first place. What you need to do is to have recognised routes that people feel will arbitrate fairly on their cases. Because yes. the people smugglers apparently recommend that all the documents are destroyed which, of course, makes assessing asylum applications that much harder. And, of course, you know the real downside is when something happens like the Liverpool bomber recently yes. um, and the but the incentive the instinct of the home secretary and the home office to turn the screw on this is really risky impacting vulnerable children the nationality and borders bill for example is proposing time limited things where people be able to submit evidence for for young people making this crossing and there were three of them on the boat that as we mentioned drowned how if they're unaccompanied minors how are they supposed to come up with the evidence yeah, for yeah. this as well I, I don't think the answer is to make the actual process of seeking asylum in the uk uh, harder. I think the answer lies in the UK and France coming up with a new uh, recognised area for people to present themselves if they wish to seek asylum, investing in the resources. Yes, looking at issues like patrols to ensure that people are rescued, but treating it less like fortress Britain and making sure actually that you recognise that this is part and parcel of being an advanced uh, democratic and uh, large economy that people will want to come here if they come from other parts of the world, irrespective of whether it's France, the UK, the UK, the Middle East, that the UK, it should be seen, I argue, as an asset that people see this country as a safe haven, not as something that we have to be ashamed of. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Uh, time for us to change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Mike, what, what are we going to turn to now? So we're going to look next at 
something that's a little bit close to home. It's also ironically relating to borders and uh, partly to do with the UK's exit from the EU, but we have to go back to look at the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol again. Mm. And this is to do with, again, ironically, a certain degree of political posturing but we've had the, uh, the the foreign minister of North, of Ireland, Simon Coveney, coming out and saying that he believes the negotiating strategy adopted by the UK on the Northern Ireland Protocol was very effective. Um, so the concessions that he says they won't have come at the costs of uh, reputation and relationships, but. The U- he also said that the UK's approach in regards to the protocol, which saw the country, bear in mind, this is two years ago now, Boris Johnson chose to take a retrograde step, as far as I'm concerned, in uh, moving from an all, a UK-wide solution to imposing a national border across between the Republic and Northern Ireland and a customs border down the Irish Sea, which was something that was not endorsed by the political parties in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, and also it created a new trade border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Now, for unionists particularly, they felt this undermined their places in the UK. There have been numerous reports about how the protocol is having difficulty functioning. And the Brexit minister, Lord Frost, and the prime minister have been taking a robust approach in talking to the EU because they want to be seen to be keeping face in this as well. And another, it's funny how the media picks up on these different articles. So it was Article 50, <laughs> and it was the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now it's Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which basically allows for either side to unilaterally suspend the mechanism, the UK or the EU, if they believe it is not working. Um, that could in turn impose even greater checks, effectively the hard border that we've all been working so hard to avoid since 2016 and that referendum decision as well. So the issue of the protocol is that the EU is once again doing all the legwork and attempting to find and ease the burden. The UK is pressing for changes because of the things it agreed to a couple of years ago for the sake of political expediency in regards to the detail and operation of the protocols. Well, but once again, we're left in a situation where Boris Johnson's rushed attempt to solve a problem has left an issue hanging over people of this country with profound consequences. Um, I mean, you say we can suspend Article 16 or the other side, kind of, if it's not working, but I mean, it, it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't, no. And it, uh, it works so far as that it is arguably better than suspending the protocol as well. But unfortunately, one of the main reasons why Theresa May pushed for a UK-wide backstop, as it was called then, was because she correctly anticipated, and her chief negotiator, Ollie Robbins, and his team mm. correctly anticipated, um, is that they knew that creating a customs border down the Irish Sea would create problems for the rest of Northern Ireland and undermine Northern Ireland's place. However, the reason this wasn't palatable to the Conservative Party because it meant the whole UK signing up to aspects of uh, EU, uh, of, of the customs union and EU mm-hmm. rules. So the, the main issue is that once again, the Conservative Party's leadership campaign traded political expediency for the sake of solving this particular problem and ultimately for for the DUP they but they have they are partly to blame in this although funnily enough polling from Northern Ireland shows that for most people the operation of the protocol is not a significant issue for them heading into next year's assembly elections 
But what it has done is allowed the uh, nationalist uh, side of the argument, Sinn Féin and Alliance and other members of that, the SDLP, uh, to have the case for uh, a unified Ireland strengthened, because as we've, as I've said before, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has that power to hold a poll on Irish reunification if there is deemed to be significant. And I'd argue that if there is a, a, a nationalist majority elected to the uh, uh, Northern Ireland Assembly next year, and don't forget, they also have a vote to suspend the protocol as well, which arguably they could exercise because that just has to be done by a simple majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly. It doesn't need to be, doesn't need to have the cross community component as well. Then that is arguably the trigger that should necessitate a referendum on Irish reunification that the UK government has to hold to. If the British government cannot put in place measures that can guarantee uh, Northern Ireland's place within the union for those who want to remain within it, and the, the, the option is a poorly functioning or non-existent protocol, then we have to look at the other options for simplifying existence, even if that risks inflaming tensions in the past. Because ultimately, the island of Ireland is a coherent territorial unit that does rely on itself, irrespective of where national borders are drawn. And the interests and in, in, in quality of life of all people living on the island of Ireland are very important, not least of all those 1.8 million people who live in the province. Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back talking to me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.